How much longer? How much longer? Have you ever stopped to consider how those three simple words hold such a prominent place in our lives? How many of you parents have been on a long road trip and, and maybe 15 minutes down the road, you had your children asking, how much longer? And they were just trying to figure out how, uh, the, the, to, to, uh, yeah, how to get past this fixed gulf between them and the fun that was awaiting them at the end of the journey. Or, or for the sports team that's attempting to run out the clock, uh, that, that, that uh, those words represent the only obstacle between their team and, their, and the trophy that they're trying to win. Or for parents trying to pay for their children's or their child's education, they represent the months remaining until graduation. I just know at some point in time in your life, the question, how much longer, has either passed through your lips or it's weighed heavily on your mind. The, and the question relates to your inability to know if or and or when things will get better. This is especially true for God's people as they view the pain, affliction, and suffering that is often associated with following Christ. As you know, in, in Thessalonians one of the things that they were going through was intense persecution and suffering. And so Paul does deal with that. We, we talked about that last week about the, uh, ask the question, is there a purpose in, in pain? And, uh, and, and there is. God redeems all of those things. And so, uh, God's people have always, when they've suffered through persecution or any of those things, they've always desired to know how long until God would bring an end to such injustice and, and, and how long before he would right all wrongs and how long he would, before he would judge those who harm his followers. Listen to how the prophet Habakkuk asked this question. He wrote this, how long, O Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out uh, or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. And so for, for decades, for time immemorial, uh, the, the, uh, the question has been there when we're going through things, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? And although we have no indication that the Thessalonians asked Paul the specific question, how long, we we know that they must have been thinking about it. And Paul actually addresses the, the, that, that question in the passage we're going to be looking at, at tonight. You know, whatever the source of the Thessalonian suffering, <clears throat> we know that it was intense. And very likely from the indications, it was suffering due to persecution. And they had a longing for God to bring judgment on their adversaries and to grant their church relief from their, their afflictions. So Paul's words in first, uh, excuse me, second Thessalonians chapter one, verses six and seven must have been very encouraging. This is what he wrote. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Now, remember, we talked about it last week uh, the God, that Paul has just told them how God was using their present suffering to demonstrate their worthiness for future glory and that God was using their suffering to prepare them for the future glory. And while it was comforting to know that their suffering was worth it, knowing that God was going to bring retribution to their adversaries and relief to their pain had to give the Thessalonians hope for the future. And as we examine Paul's, uh, this text more closely, we, one of the things we have to keep in mind to understand the perspective of what, everything that he's talking about is that we have to keep Paul's main thought in view. And we find his main thought, the thing that holds this all together in verse 7, the second half of verse 7, where he says this, This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. This verse points to the climactic event in human history when Jesus Christ returns to earth and renders complete justice and ultimately establishes his eternal reign. And when, when this event occurs, God will grant final relief to those who love him and he will bring final retribution to those who do not. And th this passage shows us, and we're going to talk about this tonight, he shows us two very different eternal destinies. That of the unending joy 
for the people of God and that of unmitigated judgment for the enemies of God. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at verses 6 through 12, but what we're going to do is we're going to go through and we're going to look at the first destiny first, what, what God has in store for believers, and then we're going to go back and look at what God has for those that are the enemies of God. And uh, so it's a little bit different in that we're not just going straight through. We'll be going through and then kind of going back again. But, you know, one of the most difficult things to do when walking through painful times is to keep a proper perspective. Pain and suffering tends to skew our perspective. Part of that is that we get our eyes focused on, on the problem. We get our eyes focused on the situation. And so it, it, anytime we get our eyes off of God, our perspective is going to be off. Uh, a loss of perspective is dangerous because it almost is always is almost always followed by a loss of pur- loss of purpose. When our mind uh, becomes fixed on what we don't like about our cir- circumstances, then what happens is we invariably uh, fail to consider what God may be doing in our circumstances. So when we're looking at the circumstances, we say, "I don't like this. I hate this. This is painful. This is terrible." What happens is we focus on that so much that we forget to think about the fact that God is at work in us and he's at work in the circumstances, whether they're, whether they're painful or whether they're joyful, God is at work. And we, we know that and it's easy to lose sight of that. So Paul really wants the Thessalonians to view their present circumstances through the lens of God's promises. And this is how we always have to view our circumstances. This is what keeps us from getting too low in the bad times and too high in the good times. You know, it keeps us more even killed that we look at all the circumstances of life through the lens of God's promises of who he is and what he's going to do in, in the long run. Um, and, and the thing is about God is with, with him, the future is far from uncertain. When, when you open the Bible and you read about it, you read the, the word of God, you're able to see into the future. Now, you can't see all the details. You know, uh, in your life, you can't open the Bible and say, it's not going to say um, uh, in, on, in two days, uh, Linda's going to walk through the door of such and such place or anything like that. It's not going to give you details about that sort of thing. Uh, it's not going to give you the details of what's going to be happening when you're walking through circumstances, and that sort of thing. But it gives you the long view of what God promises will happen. The, and, and so in that, God has graciously provided a preview of what's coming. And so armed with the knowledge of his plans, knowing what God's going to do, knowing how he's going to set up his kingdom, knowing that Jesus is going to return, knowing all of these things, the Christian can view the future with expectation and not with uncertainty. Even though I don't know the details of what's going to happen in my life for the, for the rest of my life, I don't know those details day to day. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Nobody here knows what's going to happen tomorrow in their life. Nobody knows the events that are going to take place. But I don't live in the uncertainty uncertainty of knowing that. I live with the expectation of knowing that it doesn't matter what happens in my life because I know what God's going to do in the long run. So concerning God's plans for his people, Paul informed the Thessalonians that at, at Jesus's return, He's going to bring his followers complete relief from their enemies, ultimate rest from their sorrows, and the just rewards for their faithfulness. So he talks about all of these things. So let's look at each of these promises a little more closely. The first one, he says that when Jesus returns, he's going to bring relief from our enemies. Second Thessalonians verse 1.6 says this, God is just. He will, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, Romans where he said, where he said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That he's the one that's going to deal. That's important for us to remember in this whole situation because when there's somebody that comes against you, when there's somebody who hates the gospel and they persecute you as a result of it, and I understand that our persecution in this country is very minor. It's, it's just, it's really not really persecution, but it's uncomfortable and they may attack you. But whatever it is, regardless uh, whatever they may do to you, we, it's, it's important for us to remember that the long-term view of it reminds us that that vengeance, that that retribution, that belongs to him, not to me. Uh, I think it's a really scary thing. If I start trying to get into the revenge business, 
because God says that that is, that is something that belongs to him. And so if I start meddling with it, then I'm trying to do God's work. I learned a long time ago that when God's work, God does his work, then great things happen and people see the glory of God. When I try to do God's work, all that happens is people get mad. <laughs> Every time. All they do is get mad. That's all that happens. With that said, he did say here that he was going to pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Uh, most of us are familiar with the expression, or you've heard something like this, things are not always as they seem. Anybody heard something like that? Very, through personal experience, I'm sure that, that you learn very early on in your life that looks can be deceiving. Makes me think of, I saw a, a short little video of, of a, l- a little boy who uh, was just bugging his mom to try to taste that, that cocoa. You know, it's not sweet. You know what I'm talking about? The baking cocoa. He thought it was going to be so good. And he, and he would not, he would not take no for an answer. And finally his mom said, okay, fine. And he gave him a little taste. All of a sudden he realized it is not the way it looks. You know, because <laughs> if you, <laughs> that is the, that is nasty stuff without sugar or anything in it. And, and we learn very early on that looks can be deceiving. And as we grow in our understanding of how God works, we quickly begin to realize that God is often at work in ways that we cannot see. And that often things that look bad are actually a way that God's bringing about something good. Um, so so e- even though our eyes may tell us one thing when viewing the world, we know that there is so much more to the picture. So when we look around, like our world right now, our nation, you know, just at times, and we'll talk more a little bit about this, but at times it looks like unrighteousness is winning. You know, it seems like everything is just going terribly and that people are turning their backs on God. And, and we can look at that and our eyes tell us that. But what we know, because of what the Word of God says, we know that there is so much more to the picture than what the eye can see. That God is at work, He's doing something, that we cannot fully see. Of course, this is the reason Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.18. He said, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Yet still, though, uh, knowing all these things, looking beyond temporary things, is one of, uh, frankly, one of the most difficult things for us to do. It's, it is very difficult for us to, to look past temporary trouble and, and to look to the eternal things. It's, it's just, well, I'll just say it just does not come naturally to us, certainly in the flesh. For example, uh, even on, the, on a more uh, spiritual note of that, consider how many of the typical prayer requests that we have in life are, are directed toward the temporal aspects of life. You know, we're praying for healing. We're praying for for provision, praying for all of these things. And listen, there is nothing wrong with that. We're told to do that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with praying about those things. You know, we should, there's nothing wrong with having a desire to have good health and praying for health and nothing wrong uh, with with desiring to have the the means that you need for your daily, uh, daily needs, that sort of thing. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Jesus taught that we are to take our prayers to him and to pray about those things but he also taught us that we are to take our prayers to a much different level. He, he knows that we need things like food and clothing and health and shelter. And he expects that we will seek him for those things and that we will trust him to meet those needs. However, Jesus expects that our prayers will be focused on much more significant matter, matters. That is nothing wrong with praying with the, for those things. But if we begin to see the world through the eyes of God, we begin to think about things internal, in eternal means, uh, in eternal measure, I should say, then we begin to pray about things like glorifying His name. We begin to, begin to pray about things like, about, like uh, expanding His kingdom or accomplishing His will that go beyond just what I need day to day. So we must learn to view temporary things through the lenses of God's eternal promises. That's the process. That's why getting in the Word is so important. Because as I learn what God's Word says, I'm able to use that as a lens to see the world around me. And with 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 a proper perspective on eternity, we will recognize that what we see 
tells only part of the story. While, while apparently, as I said, those who oppose the gospel and trouble God's people, the, while apparently they have an upper hand, behind the scenes we know that God is orchestrating human history to accomplish His purposes. At Jesus' coming, God will bring final relief to all believers who have suffered at the hands of the ungodly. And listen, we, we don't really, we don't suffer like that. We don't suffer for the gospel here in this nation. We just really don't. But there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of believers in this world that are suffering unimaginable suffering. Unimaginably, they're suffering uh, because of their faith in Christ. And, and, and this word tells us that God is going to bring relief to all of those that are suffering. He's going to answer the prayers of his people who cried out to him. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, we're told about the saints under the altar and their cries out to God. And they said, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And Paul is saying, listen, the day is coming when evil will be judged. It's going to happen. So that's the first aspect of it. Second thing he talks about is that he promises that at Jesus' return, that we will receive rest for our sorrows. Now, the concept of rest may mean different things to different people. For example, to the, to the weary student who has just pulled an all-nighter uh, preparing for a final exam, the word rest may conjure up images of a bed and a pillow, you know? Or for, for a, a marathon runner whose legs are, are burning and feet are, are aching, rest for him is just waiting on the, on the other, other side of the finish line. Or to the new parents listening to the incessant cries of a newborn infant down the hall, the word rest is probably just a pipe dream for them. They don't even know what it means anymore. But rest, while it means different things to different people, I think all would agree that rest is typically a good thing. Imagine the Thessalonians' reaction when they heard that God was going to give His people rest when the Lord, was, Lord Jesus was revealed from heaven. I mean, what do you think crossed their minds at that moment? They probably were thinking to themselves, oh, that's what I need, rest. That's exactly what I need. For, for people in the throes of affliction and pain and suffering, the thought of rest doubtlessly brought them much relief. And it's interesting here because Paul uses a word that's translated that, that translated rest in some translations. I don't know what it is in yours, but he uses a word that describes the releasing of a bowstring. What I mean by that, okay, you know, you talk about bow and arrow. You have the bow there and the string is there. And, and what happens when you pull on the string? The tension gets tighter and tighter. The tension gets higher and higher. And the word is that he uses is actually a word to describe the releasing of the bowstring, that that tension is gone. And it, 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 it literally can mean loose or it can mean relax. In other words, let me just ask a question. Anybody here, you, you would love to have a stress-free stress -free life? Anybody here want that? That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Nobody has that, do they? Well, you will. When Jesus comes. That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying when Jesus comes, all of that tension, all of that, the, the tension that's built up like when you pull the string back on a bow, it's going to be released. And you'll find rest. And, and Paul says that God will bring ultimate relief to every believer when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. I'm not getting into this, but that's actually imagery brought right out of the Old Testament. One of the prophets there when he talks about the blazing fire and the powerful angels. But on that day, God will provide eternal rest for his people. You know, the apostle John in the book of Revelation, he, he sort of peels back the curtain and gives us, gives us a glimpse of that day in Revelation chapter 21. Listen to what he said. Tell me if this isn't encouraging. You see, this, this is what I'm talking about, where we have to understand what he promised and what is coming because it gives us perspective when I'm dealing with any kind of pain and suffering now. Because what I'm about to read, we know is coming. So it makes, it makes it where no matter what I'm dealing with now, 
I know there's something way better that's coming my way. Listen to what he wrote. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he's talking about in heaven, after the, uh, the new heaven and the new earth uh, have descended. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and, he, and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's a picture of the rest that's coming. The, the fact that Paul points forward to a future rest is so powerful to us. But here's what we need to know now. The fact that he does point forward to a future rest is not to suggest that there will be no rest at all in this lifetime. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's a perfect rest coming, but it doesn't mean that you can't have a measure of rest here. Paul taught the Thessalonians that their present sorrows were preparing them for their future glory. But, but we know that even in our most troubling times, God still has a purpose and God is still at work. And though we may not rest from our sorrows, once, one day we will. One day we will rest from all our sorrows. But, but until that day comes, we can certainly take comfort knowing that in Christ, we can rest in our sorrows. That we can have peace and rest even in this lifetime. You know, and Paul knew how to remain hopeful in sorrow. His words to the Corinthians church, Corinthians church has provided comfort to countless believers. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Similarly, he admonished the Romans to look past their suffering and ahead to their future glory. Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So Paul says, listen, we can have some rest here, knowing that something greater is coming, but one day we'll have perfect rest. Then the, the, the third aspect of it, the third thing that we have coming when Jesus returns is will be re rewards for our faith. As difficult as it may be for us to grasp, the, the relief granted from our enemies and the rest provided from our sorrows, those things will pale in comparison to the reward we will, we will receive for our faith. Paul's description of this re reward surpasses our comprehension. We can't even begin to grasp this because Paul said, we just, we just read it, Paul said that when Jesus comes, he will be glorified in his holy people and he will be marveled at among all those who have believed. That is really, that's really quite a mouthful. He will be, Jesus will be glorified in his holy people. And he will be marveled at among all those who have believed. So the, the, the present sufferings of, of following Christ mean nothing without this promise without this glorification, without this, this wonderful moment of, of seeing Jesus. When we view the present through the lens of promises like this, then we gain a better understanding of how it is possible to see the good even in our pain. Uh, here's the, the thing that we have to know. God, this is what he's telling us, God is going to turn the tables completely. He's going to turn the tables completely. What does that mean? That means if you're suffering for Christ, he's going to turn the tables and you're going to find rest and peace. But if you're an enemy of the cross, the tables will also be turned. You're not going to have the upper hand. So we're going to talk about that part in just a moment. So for those who now face affliction and persecution and pain, God will one day grant the privilege of sharing with Jesus in the manifestation of his glory. It is hard for us to understand this. It's hard for us to wrap our, 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 our minds around it. But Paul says that Jesus will be glorified in his saints. He will be glorified in his saints. Now, some see this as referring to the saints' worship and adoration of Christ. And they say so that means then that when Christ returns, that his saints will be praising and worshiping and glorifying him. And there are others, however, that say that they see Paul as suggesting that Jesus is glorified by the work that he has done through and or in his saints. And when viewed this way, his saints are then seen as those who 
by their transformed character reflect and radiate his glory. In other words, that all creation will look at them and say, look what God has done and he'll be glorified. Now, I personally don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. I think that that all creation will see the work that God has done. He'll see the transformation. He'll see the salvation that he has purchased and the plan of God fulfilled. And all creation will give glory to God and shout and sing his praises. And we will join right along with them, giving glory to him. So I don't think it's a choice either, either or. I think it's both and that he is going to be glorified that all creation will see the, the, the work of God and will say, and all creation will say, nobody get, but God could do that. Nobody but God could do that. So re, I want to read verse 11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling, that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. So, so throughout all of his epistles, Paul has a really a unique way of transition, transitioning from heavenly discussions about future promises to the daily responsibilities of present life. And, and what we know is that future promises must always be met with practical obedience. Knowing the future promises of God is great, but I have to understand that in response to those promises, that means that I have to walk in obedience today that they're, they're related. While we long for heaven, we must also remember we have a work to do until we get there. In verses 6 through 10, Paul took the Thessalonians on a journey to their heavenly home. But before they could get too comfortable there, before they could, uh, you know, pitch a tent there like, like Peter wanted to do on the Mount of Transfiguration, before he could do that, he immediately brings them back to Thessalonica. And to make the transition from the future promise of being glorified with Christ to the present reality of their current circumstances, Paul uses the phrase at the very beginning of that, of verse 11, he, he says, with this in mind. So he's been talking about the fact that God is going to turn the tables, that they're going to find rest, that they're, that they're going to find relief from their enemies, that there's going to be a reward for the faith. He said, all of these things, he says, with all of that in mind, here's what that means. Here's what that means for you right now. In other words, Paul says, now that you know that your future is secure, let's not forget that God is still at work in you and he still has work to do through you. Although Christ's coming was imminent and God's promises were guaranteed, the Thessalonians still had a walk to pursue and they still had a mission to fulfill. And in view of this, Paul offers a prayer on their behalf. We read the prayer and in that prayer, Paul includes two specific requests, two different things he's praying about. First, he prayed that God would consider them worthy of his calling. Now, as we have discovered, God uses every circumstance, even our sufferings and our afflictions to prepare us for, the, for, the, for future glory. And our faithfulness in affliction and our steadfast hope in the midst of trials reveals the genuineness of our faith. As we talked some about that last week, that he was saying, uh, the, the fact that you are suffering in and of itself is also an evidence that you have been saved because why, why would darkness be attacking you if you are still living in darkness? And so uh, we, we demonstrate our worthiness by calling, by, uh, worthiness uh, uh, of his calling by passionately pursuing God regardless of our circumstances. We, do, we don't prove ourselves worthy of his calling in order to be saved. That's not what he's talking about. But he's saying, but we are proved worthy because we are saved. And, and, and he says he's praying, basically he's praying that they will hold fast and ha hold firm because that will show that their salvation uh, has carried them through. Then the second request is that he said that by God's power, that God would fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by, by your faith. Now that word to fulfill means to accomplish or to bring to its proper end. So what, what is Paul saying? He's actually just simply praying. He's asking God to complete the work that he began in them at their conversion. Very same thing, you know, in Philippians where he said, he said uh, that, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it uh, till the day is returning. It's the same thing. He's just simply praying, 
God started this work and I'm praying that even though, even though you're suffering, even though you're going through these things, that he will finish the work in you. What's that a prayer for? That's a prayer for sanctification. He's saying, I want you to keep growing. I want you to keep moving forward in Christ. And that's what his prayer is about. And the, the, the depth of his request for the Thessalonian Christians should really challenge us to pray in the same way for others. Because his prayer uh, went well beyond the superficial you know, bless my church requests that they're all too common among God's people. And there's nothing wrong with praying a generic bless my church, but I think there's, we can learn something from the way Paul prayed and we can put it into action in our prayers. Paul knew that the stakes were high for these young Christians. He knew that they were suffering, but I think it's really significant that instead of asking God to remove them from their danger, what did he do? He asked God to keep them faithful in their suffering, to keep them grounded in their faith, and to keep them steadfast in their work. He didn't say, take them from the suffering. He said, keep them in your hand while they're going through it. And through his prayer, Paul not only provides us with a pattern for how to pray for, for churches, but he also reveals the kind of prayer that is consistent with God's will. Here's the thing. When we make God's passion our passion, then we can be confident that He will hear us when we pray. You know, I, I have no question. When I pray a prayer that is in line with the will of God, I have no question whether He hears that prayer and He's answering that prayer. Right? So, it's important when we're praying for, uh, like, for example, when we're praying for our church, we need to know what God's will is, because if we pray in, a, in alignment with His will, then we know that releases the power of God and He just does powerful things. So the question is, what then is God's ultimate goal for His church until Jesus returns? Well, Paul answers it in verse 12. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's ultimate will is for Jesus to be glorified. That is why you were created, is to glorify God. And He will do that. He will glorify Himself through saving you. And, and uh, one day we're going to stand around His throne and we're going to glorify Him. It's, that is why we were created. And, and, and Jesus is glorified. But He's glorified not just sometime in the future, but He's glorified even now by the, by the faithful work that His people do for Him. In other words, as we serve God, as we are light in darkness, as we're salt in this, in this world, as we are the hands of Jesus reaching out and touching people, what happens? The, the, all of the attention is focused on Jesus and we reflect His glory and the name of Jesus is lifted up and Jesus is glorified through the work of His church on this, on this earth. But we also know from what he's talking about here is that the church is glorified by the faithful work that Jesus does by his grace in them. How many of you know one day this body will be a glorified body, right? So uh, in, in fact, the Bible tells us that we will share in his glory. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to get up, you know, and, you know, on the throne next to him and say, scoot over, Jesus. I'm going to share in your glory here. That's not what it means at all. That's really a little scary even saying that, you know. Uh, but it means that uh, as he is glorified, that he is going to make us like him. And, and, and so the church is glorified. While Jesus is glorified in the work that his people do for him, the church is glorified by the work that Jesus does in us. Now, so that's what he's talking about as far as the destiny for those who love God. But while the redeemed people of God will receive relief and rest on the judgment day, the fate of the ungodly will be much, much different. Paul details the fate of the ungodly by pointing to two aspects of God's judgment with language that is just direct and vivid. And, and we know that he tells us here that God's God's judgment is just, and God's judgment is final. 
This, this is really heavy. This is significant stuff. I want to read verses 6 through 10. We read part of these already, but I want to read through it all, all, all the way through one more time. This is what he said. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. So the first thing he starts off, he says, God is just. God's judgment is just. And I want you to hear this because we don't often think about this, but both the hope of life with Christ in heaven and the horror of separation from him in hell, both of those are wrapped up in the justice of God. The fact that you will be saved is part of the justice of God. I'm going to explain that. Let me just start by saying this. God demands, or excuse me, God's justice demands that he will always do what is fitting and right. That's justice. Justice is when the right thing is done. And because it's not just something that he does, it is who he is. He is a just God. Then that means that everything he does will always be fitting. It will always be right. A.W. Tozer wrote this. Listen to this. This is so powerful. I'm just going to read it through. Uh, I want you to listen to what he wrote. Justice, when used of God, is a name we give to the way God is. Nothing more. And when God acts justly, he is not doing so to conform to an independent criterion, but simply acting like himself in a given situation. I'm going to keep reading, but I want you to understand what he's saying here. He's saying God does not act justly because there is some rule or some law outside of him saying this is right. God acts justly because that is who he is. He just acts out of his nature. He goes on, as gold is an element in itself and can never change nor compromise, but is gold wherever it is found. So God is God, always, only, fully God, and can never be other than he is. Everything in the universe is good to the degree that it conforms to the nature of God. That's such a powerful statement. Everything in the universe is good to the degree it conforms to the nature of God. In other words, the way we determine if something is good or evil is, does this line up with the nature of who God is? If it doesn't, then it's evil. For example, we say, we know the Bible, we know that lying is a sin. Why is that? Because God is truth. So lying is an act against the very nature of God. Why is acting outside of love? Why is hate wrong? Well, it's because God is love. So anything outside of loving is outside the nature of God. So it's a sin. This is what he's saying. Let me start that right there again. Everything in the universe is good to the degree it conforms to the nature of God and evil as it fails to do so. God is his own self-existent principle of, uh, of moral, uh, excuse me, of moral equity. And when he sentences evil men or rewards the righteous, either one, he simply acts like himself from within, uninfluenced by anything that is not himself. So, given the fact that all human beings are sinful, the question that comes is how can a just God reward one person and judge another when we're all sinners? How can that be? Well, we need to understand, God does not set his justice aside when he redeems sinners. He did not, when he saved you, he didn't just say, oh, well, justice doesn't matter anymore. Let me just put it aside. I'm just going to save them. That's not what happened. If, 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 in fact, if God sacrificed his justice to pardon a sinner, then he would no longer be God because that's not who God is. He would be acting outside of his very nature, out of the character of who he is. But here's the thing. This is how justice plays in even into your salvation. Through the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, 
God provided a way to show mercy without doing away with his justice. All right? So, so God's holiness and justice require that all evil must be accounted for. It must. Otherwise, he's not a just God. If he doesn't do that for all evil, then there is no justice. And, and though all human beings stand guilty before God's perfect holiness, in other words, even though all human beings have sinned, he graciously offers us forgiveness and redemption through the death of Jesus. Because Jesus, what does substitution, substitutionary death mean? It means Jesus took the punishment, the accounting for our sin upon himself. And he paid the penalty for our sin. All right? And those who accept God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ will receive the reward of God's justice. And for those, what is that reward of God's justice? It is salvation and the promise of eternal rest. And that's why receiving salvation and eternal rest, that's actually a fruit of the justice of God. After all, let me put it this way. When you talk about justice and why this is the right thing for God to do. If Jesus paid for my sin and I accept the work that he accomplished for me on my behalf, it would be an injustice if I paid the price for my sin a second time after the price has already been paid. Do you see that? So it is absolutely perfect justice if I accept the price that has been paid for my sin for him to give me the reward that belonged to Jesus. Somebody once said, Jesus took my sin upon him. Well, and this is what the Bible teaches. That's just another way of saying Jesus took my sin upon him himself and paid the price for that sin so that he could put his righteousness on me. And therefore, it is perfect justice for God to give me rest and a reward in heaven. Now on the flip side, those who reject God's offer also receive the reward of God's justice. But for them, the reward of God's just, justice is judgment and the promise of eternal punishment. Because they didn't accept the price that was paid, now, remember, all evil must be accounted for. So all evil, there must be a price paid. If I reject the price paid by Jesus, then the only alternative then is to take that upon myself. Thus God is completely consistent when he promises to reward the righteous with rest and the unrighteous, unrighteous with judgment. But here's what we know. God is going to settle his accounts. He's going to settle his accounts. And this is what we have to remember. You know, it's so easy to get frustrated when you see somebody on TV and they're spewing things that are just as evil as can be, so anti-God, anti-biblical, uh, so much against the character of God. And it's, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to get my hackles up. I don't even know what my hackles, where they are, but they get up, you know, in those moments. I get angry and it's really easy and Anybody here besides me, you talk to the TV, you know, I mean, we do that as if, as if they can hear me and that sort of thing. It's easy to get all, all worried and worked up about th those things. But what I have to know is, first of all, God loves that person and he wants to redeem them and the, and he is offering them a way of salvation. But if they refuse, if they continue to attack, if they continue to reject God, I don't have to worry about that because God will take care of that. He will call all of us into account. He will settle his accounts. And while it appears that injustice and unrighteousness prevail in our world and seem to more and more and more, God is going to have the last word when he repays those who do not know him and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we know. And his judgment, and we have to remember this, his judgment will be, will be rendered justly, not vindictively. You know, we as human beings, we desire revenge for injustices done for us, don't we? That's what we want. We want to get them back. But God desires justice for the injustices done to him. Therefore, God's vengeance 
is not like ours. His vengeance does not flow from a desire to exact revenge. His vengeance flows from his desire for justice. In fact, Ezekiel 33, 11 notes that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. This is not something he wants. This is not what he planned for any human being. You know, we, we have this thing in us when we see our enemy fall. We get, we get a little bit of pleasure from that a lot of times. I mean, anybody here going to be, you know, honest enough to admit that? That when you see somebody that has just given you the worst time of your life, when you see them taken down a notch or two, isn't there something in you that goes, yeah. Anybody? Okay. I just want to make sure. I'm going to make sure I'm not, uh, that maybe you ought to be teaching if, if that's not you, but, but, but that's not God. He is so unlike you and me. God is not on some egotistical power trip to put all of his enemies in their place. I'm going to show you. He takes no delight in that. There's no joy in that whatsoever for him. God does delight when his name is glorified, when his word is vindicated, and when his son is exalted. And while he may not delight in the death of the wicked, he will hold those accountable who do not honor him, who do not honor his word and do not honor his son. So the judgment of God is just. And frankly, let me just say this. Anyone who stands before the throne of that day, who has rejected God, rejected the, the price paid for Christ, rejected the, the gospel, when they stand before God and he passes, passes judgment on them, there is no human being standing there that's going to be able to say, no, that's not right. Because in that moment, they will see clearly who God is and what he has done, and they will know everything they're about to get, they fully deserve. It is just. The second thing about God's judgment is that it is final. It is final. Let, let me give you a kind of, is a, I struggle whether to do this or not because it's kind of a silly illustration, but illustration maybe help us set us up to be able to understand this. But I want you to think back, anybody here that may be a, a football fan, think back to a time when you're watching your favorite football team and they were attempting to, to mount a, a last minute drive to win a big game. And you, you cheer on as the quarterback manages the clock perfectly and methodically moves the team down the field for, for hopefully for a last second come from behind victory. And you need a touchdown to win. So your quarterback throws a screen pass to the running back and, and he, you're cheering him on as he zigzags through to defenders and he heads for the end zone. But just before he crosses the goal line for the winning touchdown, he gets tackled just short. And you glance at the clock and you realize that time has expired. Now, if you're like me, your first thought is you look at the field to see, are there any yellow penalty flags around? Because maybe we get another shot at this. But hope suddenly gives way to reality when you realize there are no penalties, that the game is over and your team just lost. And it's sort of this sick feeling to know that your team was that close to victory but will we'll not be afforded the luxury of running another play. The game is over. It's done. Now, I want you to think about something much more serious. In verse 9, Paul reveals the ultimate fate of every person who does not know God and who does not respond in obedience to the gospel of Jesus. Listen to the finality of these words. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. When, when Jesus comes again, he will pronounce final and ultimate judgment on those who have rejected God's salvation. And, and unlike football, there, there will not be another game. There's not going to be another season with a chance to make up for the shortfall. It's game over forever. This is everlasting destruction away from God's presence. John Phillips describes the horror of the final judgment. Listen to what he wrote. The wicked then at the Lord's return will be handed over to eternal ruin. Who can imagine the horrors that will accompany the dissolution of their personality, the gnawings of conscience, the torments of memory, the anguish of guilt, and the terrible knowledge 
that their doom is deserved, hopeless, and unending. We can't even begin to imagine. Jesus, you know, he repeatedly taught people, people want to talk about, oh, I, I, let's, I just want, love Jesus. I want to talk about Jesus. You know, people that aren't saved to say, I don't like the church. I don't like Christianity, but I like Jesus. Well, they, they forget because they only, they only remember certain things that Jesus said, but they forget things like this, that Jesus repeatedly taught about a place of eternal ruin and destruction called hell. Jesus himself taught about that. He, he described it as a place of eternal fire in Matthew 25, 41, as a place of eternal punishment in Matthew 25, 46, as a place of eternal darkness in Matthew 22, 13, as a place of eternal pain in Matthew 8, 12, and a place of eternal separation in Luke 16, 19 through 31. However, listen, with all those, all of those biblical descriptions portraying the horrors of hell, Maybe the most striking is the one that Paul gives here at the end of verse 9, where he speaks of being shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. That, that is something that none of us can even begin to imagine. Because listen, even the worst sinner in this world has always known the presence of God. They may not know it, they may not recognize it, but God is in this world. He is everywhere present, isn't he? That means, that, like, like, like the psalm says, doesn't matter where you go, there he is. So even the worst sinner of this world has always known, they've always existed in the presence of God. And when that day comes, we can't even begin to imagine the, the moment, and as, and as uh, I mean, the, the fact that there's this awareness that God is real by then, for sure. Though, though the darkness and fire and anguish and the pain that Jesus talk about, talked about will make hell unbearable, the total absence of God's presence is what makes hell what it really is, hell. Because Paul, he, he emphasizes nothing about what you might find in hell. People think about hell and they think, well, it's a place of fire and a place of sulfur and the worm dies not and all these sort of things. But really what Paul's talking about and, and really what makes hell hell is not what you find there. But it's about everything, to, it has everything to do about what is absent in hell. And in that place, the presence of the Lord will be absent and the majesty of His power will be absent. To have a conscious, definite awareness of God's presence. In other words, you know, here on this earth, the people say, you know, they say, well, I, you can't prove that God exists. I don't think He exists, this sort of thing. But, but, but on that day, there'll be no denying. They will know, yes, there is a God, I've just come face to face with him. To, to have that, that conscious, definite awareness of God's presence and then yet to be completely cut off from him will be to suffer the worst kind of hell imaginable. That's what makes hell hell. In fact, you know, we talk about, people talk about heaven, what's going to be there. You know, and people talk about the streets of gold and the gates made of pearl and all these things. None of that makes heaven heaven. What makes heaven heaven? Jesus is there. What makes hell hell? Jesus is not there. That's really the, what, the, what it boils down to. And, and, and to know that such a place exists, that's bad enough. But to realize that untold millions will spend eternity there ought to cause us to shudder as the people of God. In fact, According to the, the statistics that I could find, nearly 150,000 people die worldwide every day. 150,000. That equates to more than 4.5 million every month. Here's the question we have to, that should haunt us. Where will these people spend eternity? The uncertainty of how we might answer that question should call us to immediate action. At the very least, it should, should drive us to our knees in prayer. And it should also 
change the way we spend our money. Should change the way we live our lives. It should change everything we do in, in our life. Because if, if heaven and hell are real and a personal relationship with Jesus is the only way that anyone can enjoy the eternal rest and reward of heaven. And if, if that's the only way that, that, that a person can miss the eternal pain and isolation of hell, then, then that tells us that there's nothing that we could do that, that, that could be more important than to tell others about him. According to Luke, God has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness. The day is coming. The day is coming. And we're, we're closer to it than we've ever been. As long as we have breath, then there's time on the clock. And we can make each day count. But we know his coming is imminent. Listen, if there's anything that I have felt in the last few months is this urgency in my spirit that Jesus is coming soon. His coming is imminent. But as long as we have breath, we've got another day. We've got this moment. Going back to the football analogy, there's still time on the clock. So until we die and stand before Him or or until he comes to gather us, uh, gather his church through the rapture, we must continue to proclaim him. We must continue to warn and to teach everyone that Jesus Christ is the only way. Now it's very important that we do that in love and in grace. But listen, love and grace without the truth doesn't lead anybody to Jesus. See, we, we, want to, we want to say, oh, let's just love people. We, yes, less, yes, yes, we must love people. But if all we do is love them, they never hear about the fact that they need salvation. They never hear about the fact that they are separated from God by their sin. They never hear about the fact that Jesus died for them and that he's made a way for them. We must love people, but we must love them enough to tell them the truth about the grace of God. Now, yes, I know there, there have been, you could probably give thousands of, of uh, examples yourself of people who have done it in a way that is judgmental, in a way that is angry, in a way that does not reflect the heart of God. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. It means we should do it in love. We should do it the right way. We, Jesus came, the, in John chapter 1, it says that in Jesus, it says in Him, we, we've, there was grace and truth. And that's, that's the key that we have to remember. It's not just grace. It's not just truth. It's grace and truth. Because until I know the truth, the grace means nothing to me. It's cheap. Do you see that? If, if I don't understand the truth of my sin and how I have sinned against God, I have broken His law, I have... I have acted outside of his very character and nature until I understand how horrible that is and understand that hell is what I deserve until I understand that. Then when I do understand it, then when he offers me grace, that grace is really amazing. But if I don't get the, the truth, then grace is, oh, that's, that's kind of nice. That's so sweet of Jesus. You see, without the truth, the grace is meaningless. So let's be people of the tr that speak the truth, but we'll speak it in love and grace. And let's take this, what the Bible says seriously, and understand that the day of judgment is coming. For us, that's good news, but we know that for other people, it's not. And that God takes no pleasure in that. In fact, the Bible says that, it, that, that it's His will that all should come to repentance. So let's do our part. Let's examine our lives. Let's examine the way we live, the way we talk, the way we give, the way we pray. And let Him, in His Spirit, change us where we need to change. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, Lord, this is such a, a heavy theme for us. 
there, there's, it's, it's, it's both sides of the coin, Lord, because we hear some of it and we're so exhilarated and so thrilled about what's coming for us as followers of Christ. But God, we also hear the, the other side of it, that those who reject Christ are going to suffer in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. And Lord, I pray that you would just fill our hearts with, with a, a spirit-filled compassion and, and Lord God, that we would begin to see people the way that you do. And that God, that we would have the courage and the anointing and the power from God to be able to speak the truth in love. That we would be people of grace and truth. And that because we speak truth, that the grace will mean that much more. And I pray God that you would draw people to you. And Lord, that as we speak truth, that you would bring freedom. Because you said the truth will set you free. And the reason for that is because you provide grace where you can deal with our sin. And therefore, God, and after that is done, when we receive what Christ has done, you can, in, in a very just way, say, enter into my rest. So God, just I just pray you would help us and help us to become who you want us to be. Help us to share the gospel with as many people as we can in every way we can. Not everybody, God, I know you haven't equipped everybody to stand on a street corner and preach, but you have given every one of us the opportunity to speak into the lives of other people. So Lord, help us to do it, to have the courage and speak out. And I pray, God, that, that we would do it in, in humble and gracious ways. We praise you for helping us. We know this is your will, so help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.